Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been looking together at places in the Gospels where folks argue with Jesus. And uh, we have been doing that to learn not only what's important to him, but also to learn from him how to disagree uh, with love. And so last week, uh, if you were here, you might remember, we read about a dinner party um, that Jesus went to at a Pharisee's house. Uh, and when we read that story, uh, at first it seemed like Jesus was just there with the guy who had uh, invited him. Uh, but then we found out that there were other Pharisees there too. And now uh, we'll see that the story unfolds even more. Luke tells us that there were a bunch of lawyers there as well. So we're going to read that part of the story from Luke 11, uh, verses 45 through 54. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as we uh, think about and talk about the story that we have just read together, we ask that this, uh, this thing that we just sang that we would find it to be true, um, not only uh, in the, the words of our mouths, but that we would find it to be true in our experience that, that because of your great love, and only because of your great love, um, that we are not overcome. Father, show us the grace and the mercy of Jesus and change us by it. We prayed in his name. Amen. Well, uh, some of you might know who Nick Cave is. Um, for those of you who don't, he is an Australian-born post-punk uh, rocker, uh, and he is best known for fronting the band called Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Uh, he's 63 years old. He has this uh, really resonant baritone voice and this imposing physical presence that makes him seem a little bit scary. Um, but perhaps playing against type, he is a really, really thoughtful guy. And he has this blog, and on this blog, his fans can ask him any question that they want. There are no uh, questions that are off limits. And recently, someone asked him, what do you think of cancel culture? What do you think of cancel culture? And so Cave's uh, answer began, interestingly, with mercy. 
He wrote, mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect. And in doing so, allows us the oxygen to breathe. Without mercy, a society loses its soul and devours itself. And then after that, he moved on to the question of cancel culture, and he wrote, as far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. It has grown to become the unhappiest religion in all the world. It embodies the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of the beauty. Moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity for redemption. It has become, quite literally, bad religion run amok. <laughs> Good old Nick Cave. <laughs> bad religion run amok. That seems to me uh, to be a pretty fair summary of Jesus' woes to the lawyers at that dinner party. Jesus tells them they load people with burdens hard to bear. And I think we know what Jesus means, and as Nick Cave might say, that sucks all of the oxygen right out of the room. It is suffocating and debilitating, and it does not lead to life. But of course, as always, you and I, we can't hear this story, we can't read this story and think to ourselves, well, you know, those guys, <laughs> I'm sure glad I'm not like them. <laughs> because the scripture, as all scripture, reads us. And it asks us to find our own place in the story. So Jesus is over for dinner at a Pharisee's house, and like we saw last week, he had intentionally skipped the uh, elaborate washing ritual that would have been expected of everyone who showed up at the party that day. This astonished the host, but not in a good way. And Jesus' response was to say that he and his friends were essentially living double lives, one thing on the outside and another thing altogether on the inside. They were not healthy and they were not whole. And so he spoke three woes to the Pharisees, these three statements of deep regret that he hoped would awaken a desire in them to give all of themselves to God and find their whole lives transformed. So with all of that hanging in the air, Luke thickens the plot by telling us that they weren't alone at the dinner party. There were a bunch of lawyers there as well, and one of them definitely got what Jesus was laying down because he said, teacher, when you say these things, you're insulting us too. That's an ominous opener because it makes clear that they have not uh, heard Jesus' words as an invitation to something more or something better. Now, when Luke talks about lawyers, he's not talking about what we think about when we think about lawyers. These are scribes, really. They're experts in the interpretation and in the application of the Old Testament law. They're also the ones who wrote all of the rituals and all of the customs uh, that had been built up around the law, like the one that Jesus ignored when he showed up for dinner that day. It's not exactly as simple as this, but sometimes I like to think of it this way. If the Pharisees were the muscle of the dominant religious establishment of the day, then the scribes were the brains of the outfit. They saw themselves as guardians of public morality, and now they're insulted 
because Jesus did not uphold their stuff. So, as always, we ask what matters most to Jesus in this moment. What is the most important thing to Jesus in that moment? Church, there's no audience, no audience there but them. They are the only ones who will hear his words. He's not trying to score points. The thing that matters most to Jesus in that moment are the scribes, even though they are the ones who have chosen to hear him in the most uncharitable light they can. They matter to Jesus. And so he gives them three woes of their own with doors that swing wide, giving them a chance to come home again to the Father. So the second and the longest of those woes uh, begins, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets who your fathers killed. Israel, of course, had a long history of abusing and even killing its prophets. And Jesus is pointing out that these scribes um, have taken great pains to build monuments to those dead prophets. And as Jesus points out, that just betrays their hypocrisy. He says, you consented to the deeds of your fathers. Building these tombs was great public relations, but it is also deep hypocrisy. So what Jesus is doing in that woe is pointing out to the scribes that just like the Pharisees, they are divided selves. They are living double lives, keeping up a public appearance with hearts that do not match. And church, I just have to say, there is this steady stream in Scripture, a persistent theme that says that that is a very easy danger to fall into for people who profess faith. To not have the inside match the outside. And so Jesus tells them that the blood of the prophets is going to be charged against that generation. Now, I don't know what they thought he meant by that, but we know what he meant. Jesus himself is a prophet standing among them, and he knows where his story is headed with these men. That's an important thread in the story. It's one that we have to keep in mind. Jesus knows they are a threat, and he does not run from them. He stays with them. So the first and third of those woes are the ones that speak directly to their self-appointed role as guardians of, of public morality. The first woe is this, woe to you lawyers also, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. He's talking about all of those elaborate rituals and customs that had been written up around the law, like the hand washing that Jesus had ignored all of the extra laws they had written and built up. He says, you're just piling it on and on and on people's backs, and you don't do a thing to lift it off. The purpose of the law, as we have already seen in one of the arguments that Jesus had in this series that Pastor David walked us through, this argument with this uh, other lawyer who had come and asked Jesus, what's the most important thing about the law? Jesus said the essence of it is that it would lead people to know God and to be known by him and to love him and to love others. He says the essence of the law 
is to love God and to love neighbor. And that means that the law was never intended to be an end in and of itself. God never intended it to function that way. The law could point people in the right direction. The law could tell people when they had wandered away from the right direction and guide them back. But it never had, and it never will, have the power to change anyone's life. The law cannot make anyone new again. It can't make people right. And the scribes obsession with it had obscured that desperately important fact and the burden was suffocating and there was no room to breathe it was bad religion run amok and church I I don't think it's that hard to see the easy parallels with our own world I mean, there have always been moral scolds. That's nothing new. But all of the fevered hot takes and all of the call-outs, all of the public intimidation and shaming and even violence that is being used to scold anyone that anyone perceives as the other, it is becoming overwhelming in our world. It comes from the right, it comes from the left, it comes from red, it comes from blue, it comes from religious, it comes from secular, and all points in between. We use phrases and counter phrases and hashtags and words as shibboleths to shame and separate and divide people with this thin moral clarity that pretends godlike omniscience. There is little room at all for any kind of redemption. These are burdens that are hard to bear. <laughs> they are suffocating. And they do not come from love. And church, what I'm saying is that we have been called to something far different than that, something far better than that. Our starting place, our starting point, it always has been and it always has to be that Christ died for the ungodly and that means me, (laughs) that I'm the one that he's talking about there. Our starting point is always to say that I was undeserving in all of the ways that you could possibly count deserving And Jesus loved me and gave himself for me anyway. Not in spite of those things, but precisely because I was undeserving. In church, it is that grace, it is that love that is unexpected and untamable. It is that love that is scandalous. That's where all of us start out. Every single one of us who follows Jesus starts right there. And one of the many effects that that has on people like us as we believe it, and I mean believe it in the sense that we begin to live out of it, one of the many effects is humility. (laughs) A right uh, sense of ourselves and who we are. And from that humility grows a desire to love others in the way that we have been loved because we know that it changes things. And we will not resort to shame or fear or scolding.
that's what forgiven people do. That's who forgiven people are. We're, we're not afraid to be wrong because <laughs> we know it's likely we probably are. <laughs> and we give other people the space to be wrong so that maybe they could figure out what is right. And we forgive people and we show mercy and we refuse to define them by their mistakes. That's who we are. And I know that it's easy to forget that. For a million reasons, I know that it's easy to forget that that's who we are and that's where we start. I forget it every day. And that's why you and I need to be a people who, who make space in our lives, actually who order our lives around returning to that truth and feasting on that truth. It's not hard how we do that. We, we do it as we worship together. We do that as we are with one another. We do that as we read scripture. We feast again on that truth as we pray. <laughs> These are the ways that we remember that we have been loved first. These are the ways that we cultivate humility. These are the ways that we cultivate mercy. These are the ways that we are empowered to love for the life of the world. As Micah the prophet put it in our Old Testament lesson, these are the ways that you and I walk humbly with God. And that's really what Jesus' third woe to those guys was all about. That third regret, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter in and you're hindering the people who enter in. I mean, that was certainly one of the purposes of the law to show who God was and how to know him and to be known by him. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're barring the door for that. You're not even making that possible. And so Jesus' regrets for them hang in the air as invitations to them and to us to drop all of it and head through that door into new life. Church, this is the best argument that they have ever been a part of. And you know, we know, of course, that many of them did not take him up on that invitation. Luke says they went on to try to press him hard, to try to catch him up in something that he might say, and we know how the story goes, just like Jesus knew how it would go. And even when they are nailing him to a cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Church, that love, <laughs> that scandalous, surprising love is the love that made us and makes us new. And it gives us everything that we need to love others in humility and in mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would make us into a people who let this story, who let these regrets, these woes read us. <laughs> so that we would see so that our strength, would, so that our faith would be strengthened, so that we would believe, so that we would cling to the one who loved us when we were deeply unlovely, who loved us before we even wanted to be loved. Father, we ask that you would do this uh, 
certainly for our good, so that we would grow up in our faith and do it so that through us we can be people who love with the same humility and with the same mercy and the same grace that we have been given for the good of this broken world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.